I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that picks through the pantry of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham. And I'm the opposite. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So Jake, here we are again back in the Ghibliotech, continuing your education into the great animating studio. So uh, how are things going this week? I'm very excited about this week. Um, when we did our first series, which listeners can catch up on, uh, there was one particular film that I received many a message about. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, a, a particular ginormous testicles film <laughs> called Pompoko. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to be talking about this week. That is the one, Isao Takahata's Pompoko, known as the, the giant raccoon dog testicle movie. Should we crack on with it, Jake? Let's do it. So let's start with a quick plot synopsis. A rural area in southwestern Tokyo is marked for rapid residential development, endangering the habitat of a colony of raccoon dogs known as tanuki. According to Japanese folklore, tanuki are mischievous creatures with giant testicles and supernatural powers. And in the face of this certain peril, the tanuki band together and harness the ancient powers of transformation in order to infiltrate, observe, and hopefully deter the encroachment of the human population. They soon concoct elaborate schemes to scare off the construction workers, but will their magic be powerful enough to hold back the progress of post-war industrial Japan. Now, there's a lot in that synopsis that I think is familiar territory for mm-hmm. Ghibli. Will their magic be powerful enough to hold back post-war industrial Japan? Yes, familiar stuff. I know it. I, I feel like we're in the world I'm used to now. Then there's other phrases mischievous creatures with giant testicles and supernatural powers. Mm -hmm. Maybe a bit of a surprise for me going into this one. (laughs) Um, I would love to hear a bit more about where Pompoko came from, because it is wild. Let's do the context then, Jake. So this is early 90s. 
This is Assess Hakata's follow-up to Only Yesterday, a film that we covered in the last series. Um, circa 1994, this one was released. It was an original story by Assess Hakata. Hayao Miyazaki was involved in, a pla- in the planning stages. Um, but this film fits right in between the theatrical releases of Porco Rosso and Whisper of the Heart during that very fertile period for, for Ghibli where they made many films in several years. Um, but you ask about Tanuki and why Tanuki. Well, this was something in the middle of um, what is known as the Tanuki craze. In the early 90s in Japan, there was a really popular anime series called uh, Pokonyan that was on telly back then, 160 episodes uh, in the early 90s. And also a few years before, this is the only exposure I had, and maybe I shouldn't say exposure for <laughs> for these uh, giant testicle dogs, but um, my only exposure to Tanuki was from Super Mario Brothers 3, uh, the classic, some say best, Super Mario Brothers uh, platform game on the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1989. There was a what was known in the West as the Raccoon Suit, was actually a tanuki suit. You'd see this leaf, uh, you'd pick it up and Mario would be able to fly, he'd have a giant tail and turn to stone. Um, so that was a tanuki. But then this was seen as, you know, there the, were figures of folklore for hundreds of years beforehand, known, as, known for their magical powers and so on. But this was, in Ghibli's eyes, the first movie to depict the tanuki versus human population problem. There's a great anecdote from uh, Toshio Suzuki's memoirs, the great producer, um, which was lent to me actually uh, by Alex Dudok-DeWitt. I'd like to give a shout out to Alex. He got hold of the English language version of these memoirs that you can only get in Japan. Um, But there's a great anecdote in here that's specifically to do with the title, um, Pompoko, which is an onomatopoeic sound of uh, wrapping your hands on a belly. Um, Here's a quote from uh, Suzuki from the memoirs. From the beginning to end, Miyazaki opposed this title. Being a very serious person, he kept repeating that he couldn't understand why a film from Ghibli should have such a title. So Toshio Suzuki stood by Takahata and issued a memo, company-wide memo, saying, um, it's the title of the film, not the story, that is counterintuitive. If anything is to be shallow about the film, it should be only the title. The rest should be deadly serious. To be a success, the film must first appeal to adult audiences. He also said that Pompoko was important to Ghibli at this stage because what we were afraid of was being old, being told that Ghibli had become predictable and boring. So, because if you think about Ghibli at this stage, they're making a, uh, they're following on from films like Kiki's Delivery Service about a young witch, only yesterday about a sort of middle-aged woman, and Porco Rosso about a, a poor kind flying ace, and now they make a complete turn and make a film about urbanization in Japan, uh, you know, centering on a colony of these raccoon dogs and their magical testicles. So maybe Suzuki was thinking, you know what, I really think doing a two-word title that began with P and ended in O worked well with Porco Rosso. So let's just do it again. That's it. That's the secret. Yeah. (laughs) And it paid off. (laughs) This uh, film sold over 3 million tickets on release in 1994. It was a box office hit. It was the highest grossing Japanese film um, at the Japanese box office for that year. And it was actually the the Japanese submission for best foreign language feature at the Academy Awards that year. Amazing to think that, you know, this was in the before the days when there was an animated feature Oscar. So something like a Studio Ghibli film would be submitted. It's only the first of two Ghibli films that was submitted by the Japanese industry. And so when the animated feature came in early 2001, so was it Mononoke that was also Mononoke submitted? was the other one, neither of which were actually nominated in the end, which is crazy to think that Princess Mononoke was up for nomination at the Oscars and wasn't. Uh, but it was a huge hit um, in Japan. But then 
hard to localize on an international scale. We don't know, you know, in the West, we don't have the figures of tanuki, raccoon dogs. They're called raccoon dogs, but they're not really related to dogs or raccoons. Yeah. Uh, we don't have this tradition of, well, first of all, testicles already. Yeah. Um, it, it makes things a bit complicated to sell to family audiences in, in the States in particular, where they were called something like their pouches, their raccoon pouches in the, in the subtitles. Uh, so it took a long time to come out. It wasn't really until the 2000s when it finally did. Um, you know, how do you refer to Tanuki's enlarged scrotums? So this film becomes something of a cult favourite, an oddity within the Ghibli canon, and becomes known specifically for the testicles, as you know. Um, and here's a quote from David Jenkins, uh, who's currently editor of Little White Lies, but this was back in his days at Time Out from his review. Not quite up there with the best of the studio's output, but it's still a striking and universally pleasurable experience. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Uh, it's certainly striking, that's for sure. Yes, exactly. But was it pleasurable, Jake? <laughs> Let's find out. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, Jake, you said you knew what you were expecting here in terms of the balls of the movie. Yes. But was this what you were expecting in general? Um, I really wasn't quite sure what to expect out of this one. Uh, we've spoken a lot, as uh, unsurprisingly, about Takata and what I have loved so much about his films is how many risks he's willing to take, whether that is with narrative or with the form itself. Um, 
And so I was really excited to watch this film just because when I see his name on it, I know it's not going to be something that I've seen before. And it begins uh, in a quite National Geographic type way. Um, it's you're almost expecting David Attenborough to pop up and start narrating it. Uh, And there is a narrator throughout the film telling us the story of these uh, tanuki and and their plight against the industrialization of their their area in Japan. And the initial uh, feelings I were getting were kind of animals of farthingwood. We're we're setting up a defense, uh, like a green Aesop fable. Um, and I was, I'm quite easily drawn into tales of that. I do I like animals, mm-hmm. and it's uh, they're they're. I'm a dog person. They are very dog-like, um, and I was very much on board quite quickly with it. It's a lot of fun to begin with, uh, as much as it is quite exposition-heavy about giving you the history of the Tanuki and where mm-hmm. their their magical transformative powers came from. Um, in a way, it feels like. Uh, an educational video. Certainly the beginning, it has this voiceover, doesn't it? And there's almost God's eye view, literally, of this area and the way that it's being transformed by by human hands. Mm. Literally, hills and entire forests are being swept away in, in, you know, in the name of progress. Um, and you have that amazing visual motif of the leaf being eaten away yes. by diggers. So th- this is... Um Takata doing the things that I lo- like, particularly in Only Yesterday. Mm-hmm. When I spoke about that film, I spoke about the moments where uh, he really does just almost let the form that he set up throughout just disappear, uh, just to emphasize a single moment. So that might be uh, when the lead character is so uh, fall is falling in love so hard that she like climbs up into the sky on mm-hmm. an invisible staircase. And up until that point, it's all been fairly real. Um, and I, I love that. And in here, this leaf just covers the screen. And gradually you see these these little yellow JCB-like bulldozers picking away through the stems and veins of the leaf, disintegrating it. And you see underneath, as it pulls away, the destruction of the Tanuki's forest underneath. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. And you also see... Uh, what you think is a small hill, but then a single enormous digger takes out an entire chunk. Mm-hmm. And then you see this amazing time lapse building a whole city within that chunk. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I know you've said in the past how you, you've observed this distinction between Miyazaki and Takata in the sense that Takata isn't an animator and an artist himself, so he has a sort of freedom Mm. with the stylistic rules of animation. And you see that so clearly in the opening clash between the Tanuki where the same Tanuki characters change between three different design styles almost within the same scene where they go from ultra-realistic on all fours to a sort of halfway anthropomorphic character design to then ultra-cartoony. Yeah, and and, and the the first form uh, makes some kind of sense because it's this is how they appear to humans. And then the form that we mostly see them in is the anthropomorphic mm-hmm. one that you say. But the, the third one, <laughs> I don't know who that's for. There, there's no reality for it to connect to, mm-hmm. uh, which is fantastic, really. Um, yeah. and, but, and in those moments, that's when they're perhaps at their most joyful, mm-hmm. that they lose any sense of having any responsibility to be uh, connected to humanity, that they have this complete freedom of form. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it's, it's really fascinating. I love, one thing I love about this movie is that it really does have so much in it that you wouldn't see in any other Ghibli movie. Um, we, we've talked before about these character designs and so on, but this is also, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong as we go on, the only Ghibli movie with live action in? Yes. Uh, so these Tanuki, they love tempura, apparently. And they love I, TV. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love tempura and TV too. Uh, but we see some live action it's, I mean, other than the the famous Canal documentary, maybe this is the only live action associated with Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a f- maybe it's half a second of tempura on the Tanuki's TV being cooked. It's it, it shocked me. It's just <laughs> such a tiny thing, um, and I immediately put it down in my notes because I, th- I thought, yes, that would never have been in a Miyazaki film. And the same with later on. Uh, there's a there's a video game motif that pops up. It's yeah. almost like a side scrolling, eight uh, bit little 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 character that's there. It's really fascinating. You mentioned the Canal documentary. I wonder now if you're getting a sense of who Takata is and as, as a filmmaker. So we've covered Grave of the Fireflies only yesterday, and now this one. So we've actually gone chronologically. Um, but in, amongst these these three films, in between, well, actually, it's just before Grave of the Fireflies, he made this three-hour-long documentary about canals in the Yanagawa province. His, you know, hundred-year-old, two hundred-year-old canals that have been left to 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 be filled up by random sludge and needs to be dredged by the local population. And he he throws himself into this live-action project, levying all of the money that was made early in Ghibli's career to make this this epic. But that says so much about him as a filmmaker. He is a he's a journalistic filmmaker, isn't he? This film, on the face of it, you think about um, characters who have the art of transformation, and you you see a trailer, you see a few clips where it's these Tanuki transforming into humans, transforming into these these great monsters as well at various points. But really, at the heart of it, there's some point being made journalistically yeah. um, about not only the position you, you learn about these Tanuki characters in folklore, but also you learn about this great change in Japanese culture and what may be lost and what's being replaced with it in the yeah. modern world. It feels almost like a long read in a way yeah. um, and the the narrative structure is quite odd as well mm-hmm. like it doesn't have a like a traditional curve up to a climax um, and like three act structure it feels quite like uh, broken up in a way like he has just picked out these individual bits and individual scenes that he knows he wants to show and mm-hmm. how he's going to show them and the connecting tissue between them is a bit thinner mm-hmm. Um but again, admirable to try that. I don't think it does all hang together. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, though, that connecting tissue does feel a bit weak. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes those scenes in between them do feel elongated or even unnecessary. Um, there's, there's actually a, a midsection involving a, a theme park, yeah. which ends up taking a good half an hour of the film, mm-hmm. which, when you think about it, wasn't needed at all. Mm-hmm. It's a film, for me, that could be half an hour shorter and would be a better film. I know that it's you know quite superficial to, to talk in such terms, but I think there is one where you can lift out an entire section of the movie because there are so many good sequences. Mm. The one that I love is uh, when the Tanuki are starting to terrorise these construction workers, you have an incredible bit that's almost like a short horror movie. Yeah. It looks like a sort of Junji Ito manga horror strip mm. where there, uh, it follows this one construction worker's worst shift in his life 
where he sees a uh, you know a woman who who whose face melts in front of him and then everyone he meets from the other security guard on duty to these children etc yeah. all just say did they look like this and he goes to a convenience store and yeah. all of the all of the shoppers there have the same melting face yeah it's it, it quite creepy reminded me of uh, Nada the the, mm. the lady with uh, no face in those in first two Twin episodes Peaks, of New Twin Peaks yeah. it's complete nightmare stuff but brilliant I, and uh, that is such a fantastic sequence of this and that is illustrative of the, t- the the nice two ways of the the tanuki are kind of approaching this issue of theirs uh, that the humans have come in and they're trying to steal their land and the first way that they think about getting rid of them is to intimidate them scare them off they they, they end up killing them like there's there's well, there I think are it's factions at least five. Within, isn't it yeah. yeah so so within the tanuki you know, community. There are these varying, you know, yeah, ways of approaching it. Varying various factions. You have that sequence where it's almost like bringing the seven samurai together, mm. where they have to go and get the old masters from various provinces and come together. Mm. And yeah, some of the the it's quite violent. Some of yeah. the methods and and the violent methods obviously doesn't work. Like um, the industry is always going to push on. It's always going to destroy that forest, and that's quite a sad thing. Watching the whole film, you really know that There's it's an, all going that way. Inevitability to it. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing like, to see them constantly try and rise up against that. Um, but once the once they realise that that violence is never going to solve anything, uh, they instead try to make the humans appreciate their supernatural powers. And for me, present just the absolute standout scene of the film, which is the goblin parade, mm. where they exert so much of their power I mean as much like one of them even dies because of the amount of magic they're generating but they turn themselves into like a thundercloud mm-hmm. uh, a dragon uh, witches whatever like I mean there's a whole enormous parade of fantastic beings that they use just to impress the humans of the nearby city and make them rethink about their treatment of the forest of the tanuki and perhaps just by doing that, they might save their home. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. It's a wonderful sequence and a wonderfully animated sequence, but it gets to the heart of Takata's almost satirical filmmaking mm. POV as well, where the re- response to that is, you know, the media latch on to this momentary craze. They become interested in Tanuki, but then it becomes sidelined with this sense of a, it being promotion for a local theme park. And it's... You know the story passes with the mm. seasons. It's a it's only a momentary interest. If they manage to scare away the construction workers, more people will be hired the next day. If they manage to create such a a hubbub that there's political concerns, that'll go away because this needs this is the march of progress. This is going to happen. It's inevitable, and it gives way to this almost three parts uh, ending sequence mm. that. I think packs quite a punch after maybe twenty minutes of going off the rails a little bit yes. with the, the Kitsune, the, uh, the the fox who who's there causing causing trouble. But then this final sequence where you have the final stand of the violent Tanuki, which is a sequence that is often quoted. I don't know if you, if you came across this in the pe- when people talk about this film. It's the one where um, they use their testicles to beat up policemen, mm. for example. And yes, out of context, that sounds quite silly, but in context. Mm. It, you, 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 these are the tanuki being killed. You can see them being be- beaten and turning back into their their realistic form, 
You have that sequence. Then you have the, the, the absolutely crazy poetic sequence of the funeral barge of the non-transforming Tanuki going off into the afterlife, which is like something out of Lord of the Rings, wasn't it? Yeah, that, it's, it's really beautiful. This um, amazing ship that is full of all the treasures that they could possibly imagine, that there's drumming and dancing and treats. And they because they know they don't have the magical powers to be able to survive in the real world, so they just have this one final journey and mm-hmm. then drown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the final transformation, which is stretches the the, the, the fiction. Like, what what is their power set? Yeah. So to not, not not to approach this like a Marvel or DC movie. What's the power set of the Tanuki? Whether the final transformation, they transform the city back to what it was before the development, and it's quite a strong statement on Takahata's part and gets to the heart of the sense that Tanuki as supernatural creatures can transform themselves but humans as technological creatures can transform the environment forever mm-hmm. and you know the Tanuki's power you know is is momentary it's only a, a, a trick yeah. but it's quite a you know it's almost the, the moment that is quite a tear-jerking moment actually yeah, it's where it suddenly um, becomes more profound yeah um I mean to Reference, I mean, a very different moment, but uh, in the final Harry Potter film, when all of the all of the wizards kind of do the protection spell mm-hmm. on Hogwarts and just teaming up to just give this one final act of protection for these people, um, and it, it gets you like whether it's just that that spirit of collaboration and working towards something and that that final battle. And here, what's really what I really like about it is that. Where in the Harry Potter you're seeing something magical, you're seeing something like it's uh, quite astounding to watch because it is something different and it's something that we've not seen before. In this, they're not showing you something you've never seen before. They're just using their powers to show you something that was there and was destroyed and that actually makes it even worse. And there's even that character that says, oh, there's my, my grandma or whatever, who, who died, <laughs> being conjured up. And it's something that we see time and again, at least in the director's memoranda for these films, is they want to evoke a sense of what was lost. Nostalgia well, the, the thing, because they all have to concentrate so hard on this spell and ultimately the thing that breaks the spell is two of them thinking that they can see their younger selves. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think if... This is a film that shouldn't be two hours long, um, <laughs> but that has these moments that yeah. I think it's not a very well-regarded film in the Ghibli canon. I, I think it's it's often seen as a bit of a silly curio in some people's eyes, but it has some of the most powerful moments and sequences. I think the ending, the downer of the ending, where um, the main Tanuki character, who's sort of been the main protagonist all the way through, at least the thread through all of the stories, he's. It reminds me of Neil Gaiman's American Gods, where once the Tanuki have been wiped out as supernatural creatures, they can only become humans and just assimilate into everyday life. And he's got a job and a family, and he's commuting home as a human, forgetting who he was. It's such a a poignant way to end. But it does end on a good joke. that There is greenery left in the city. It just so happens to be a golf course. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but, but we should actually say that that but did did that um, did the location seem familiar to you at all? Oh yeah, totally. There was a, a sense that there were these these rolling hills uh, and the houses kind of perching up on them, like uh, almost like st- steps on stairs. Yeah, well, it's actually the area of, of southwestern Western Tokyo, Tama Hills, that is this huge new town that is the location of Whisper of the Hearts. Funny because these films were made side by side, 94, 95, released one after the other. And both Miyazaki and Takata were very much looking at the similar, taking inspiration from the same area of 
the city around them. Mm. Quite fascinating, really. Well, talking of Whisper of the Heart, Whisper of the Heart is currently number one on the uh, the leaderboard, and I'm I'm wondering whether Pompoko might topple it. Well, let's find out, Jake. <laughs> So this is the leaderboard where I where I challenge Michael Leader to rank some of these his favorite ever films. Uh, currently, we've got seven on there. Whisper of the Hearts at number one, and on the way down, My Neighbor Totoro, Grave of the Fireflies, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, Only Yesterday, and at the bottom, our most recent episode, Hal's Moving Castle. So Jake Pompoko. Um, this is such an interesting one. I, th- I wonder if, as we go on through the leaderboard, we should start figuring out tiers rather than an absolute list because an absolute list makes it sound almost like there's a bottom of the pack and a top of the pack and uh, a, 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 a drop in between. Yeah, I mean, to give a completely different analogy, uh, on for when, after a Barcelona game, when they have a man of the match that isn't Messi. Oh, yeah? So Because Lionel Messi is always the best player on the pitch, so they have to say, <laughs> who's the man of the match that isn't Messi? Okay. So where can we rank these that... You can't touch the god tier of Fireflies, <laughs> Totoro, Whisper of the Heart. They're safe. Well, I, I'd say that this, as we've said th- through the through your review section, it, it has great moments. It has all of the the specific, the Takahata specific magic of this journalistic worldview, pointed satire, poignant ending, etc. But it is too long. But it is a bit esoteric. I think that I prefer this to Howl's Moving Castle. So I would put this currently as in number seven, nestled between only yesterday and Howl's Moving Castle. But with this strong caveat that I think it's worth seeing. I mean, that's still quite a delicious sandwich to be in the middle of. It's a delicious sandwich indeed, Jake. But what's next? Yeah, um, so next week is one that I've heard, again, a lot about. Uh, I think... Maybe some listeners know that I'm a big Indiana Jones fan and I've had a lot of messages saying, Porco Rosso, Porco Rosso. When's Porco Rosso happening? Porco Rosso indeed is our next film. This is the flying ace 1920s Adriatic Sea adventure starring a pig. <laughs> it's, oh, it's oh, I'm be so, so excited. Fun. I'm so excited as well. Uh, that's next week. Finally, big thanks to Silk Factory for hosting us this week, recording here in sunny Soho. Yep, uh, they're a full-blown marketing creative agency and they don't just make podcasts like ours, they'll also help make trailers, content for TV, digital, social platforms. Go and check out their work at thesilkfactory.co and we can go right outside the door and recreate the front cover of What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis. Should we do that, Berwick Street and Soho? Let's do it. There's a lot of Ghibli Oasis crossover fans out there, I'm sure. And that really about wraps things up. If you want to keep in touch, you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. Bibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. We record at Silk Factory. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Mo, And Steph Watts helps us out with all of our GIFs, images, and anything else we post online. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. That's me. I do the voiceover for the credits as well.
Hi everyone, thank you for sticking through the credits. This week's Nuggets is another cameo spotting one. So about an hour and nine minutes in, we were talking about Operation Goblin, the, the mass transformation. There's one moment you might need to pause it and skip frame by frame, but you can see Kiki from Kiki's Delivery Service flying by on her broom. You can see Porco Rosso's plane flying through and also Totoro himself spinning around. I wouldn't normally interrupt your special post-credit nugget, but I think I got one that maybe not many people have found. Uh, so this is about half an hour in uh, during the no-face nightmare scene as we called it uh, and the security guard goes into the family 11 which is a bit of a mixture of family mart and 7-eleven and if you look at the top of the family 11 logo you will see two soot sprites our familiar friends from spirited away and my neighbor totoro incredible thank you jake Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.